Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 7th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Breaking news today. Apple has announced a new iPhone and the headline is it will have no headphone jack. Wireless headphones. And because Apple is this amazing futuristic company who doesn't like to pay taxes in Ireland, but but because of that and because we're a podcast and Apple named podcasts, they have enabled us the gist to allow you podcast listeners to experience the new wireless headphones, what they will sound like right here, right now, as you listen to your old wired headphones, or as we'll soon call them, old people phones, ear chains, wired like Uncle Hiram headphones. Okay, let's reset the show in the futuristic world of the wireless headphone. It's Wednesday, September 7th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Yesterday, Donald Trump fielded a question from a no-nonsense, take-no-prisoner military man, retired General Michael Flynn. You may remember General Flynn from such expeditions as the Defense Intelligence Agency, from which he was fired by President Obama, and the Republican National Convention, where he full-throatedly endorsed the man he found himself with on a stage yesterday. Here was General Flynn questioning Trump, and we will play the Q&A through the miracle of wireless headphones. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the future of technology merged with, I hope not, the future of the presidency. You have described at times different components of a strategy, military, cyber, financial, and ideological. Can you just expand on those four a little bit? Well, that's it. And you know, cyber is becoming so big today. It's becoming... uh number of years ago, a short number of years ago, wasn't even a word. And now the cyber is so big. And, you know, you look at what they're doing with the Internet, how they're taking the Internet. And part of it is the psychology, because so many people think they're winning. And there's a whole... The Night Vale Tourism Board. CNN came out with a big poll. Their big poll came out today that Trump is winning. It's good psychology, you know. We're allowing people... But cyber has been cyber has been very, very important, and it's becoming more in ideology and psychology things. You know, we're in a different world today than we were in 20 years ago and 30 years ago. Now, I understand there might have been a slight dropout as you listen. That's to be expected. You know, landlines, those work better than cordless phones, but now you got to replace them. And then cordless phones, those work pretty good, but now you got to replace them with mobile phones, even in the house, right? 
put in a DVD, it works. But now you can stream all your movies. Just wait for them to buffer and move the router a little bit. It's your fault, you know. I mean, all this convenience, the technology's working, it's your fault. You haven't positioned the router right. Who doesn't love the convenience of not having to deal with a horrible wire? And don't you like trading that for constant interruptions and pauses? This is the future. It's progress. Cyber. It's cyber. It's so important. On the show today, I spiel about the dueling foundation scandals, Clinton, Trump, and I render judgment about the optics of the appearance of the whiff of the feeling of potential impropriety. Very bad. Doesn't look good. Cyber. But first, oh, political correctness, it's killing comedy. Although I have been laughing a lot lately. How to square these two ideas? I will talk with a documentarian and a comedian who ask the non-musical question, can we take a joke? I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, the interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life, it is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. An inappropriate joke, a poorly timed reference saying Eskimo instead of Inuit. Any of these things can get you heckled, sneered at, or seriously protested in the world of comedy, especially if you're on a college campus. Things seem to be getting worse or at least more restrictive, and this is the subject area of the new documentary, Can We Take a Joke? It's a documentary about comedy and about some of the unfunny things visited upon comedians who cross somebody's line. Ted Balaker is the director of the documentary, and one of the uh, comedians who's in it is Kareth Foster. Hello, Ted. Hello, Kareth. Thanks for coming in. Hi, Mike. So, Ted, was there an inciting event where you said, this is where the accusation that someone has crossed the line has crossed the line. I got to do something about this. Let's see. I guess I have to go back to the early 2000s when I was living in New York and my brother, Matt, who's a stand-up comedian, and I were taking in the show at the Comedy Cellar. And during the show, uh, the comedian was doing his thing and someone from the audience shouted out, I'm offended. And the comedian handled it well. He made fun of the guy. You know, he says like something like, hey, you know, honey, let's let's go to the Comedy Cellar. I feel like getting offended tonight. Um, and so everybody has a good laugh. Uh, And then afterwards, my brother and I say, you know, who goes to a comedy club looking to be offended? That's crazy. Um, And then fast forward, you know, 10 years or so, uh, these things are happening more and more and not just, you know, hollering out, I'm offended. That's one thing. It's shouting comedians down, censoring them, uh, getting them, uh, trying to get them to lose their gigs. It seemed like these things 
were happening with more frequency and were getting more pointed. It's no longer just, I disagree with you. I don't think that was funny. It's, we need to shut this person up. And this also seems to be tied into uh, college campuses more than ever. It's happening on college campuses. I think we've seen a lot of comedians going back. You have archival footage, obviously, of George Carlin talking about you can't even play college campuses anymore. And this was 10 years. Recently, uh, Jerry Seinfeld was talking about, oh, my gosh, they get so offended on college campuses. But it's one thing with a pro comedian in a comedy cellar who really shuts that heckler down. And it's another thing, some of the excesses that go on on college campuses. Why don't you get into some of them, Ted? I really feel uh, most sorry for for the young comedians coming up because, uh, as Kareth explains in the film, it's it's tough to get comedy right. I have a lot of respect for what they do, and so we need to give these people a lot of leeway to to try out their material and go through the rough patches. So we we highlight a number of student comedians. One of them is a guy named uh, Chris Lee from Washington State University, and he he made this comedy musical kind of in the spirit of Dave Chappelle and South Park, and it was called The Passion of the Musical. It was, it was about the controversial last few days uh, of the life of Jesus Christ. His intent was to offend everybody, um, but also more than that, to to spur discussion about sensitive topics like like race and religion and so forth. So he went to great lengths. He, he had people sign a contract saying they realized it was going to be offensive. This was off campus. Uh, and so during the uh, performance, one of his performances, um, people started um, standing up and hollering, I'm offended, I'm offended. And then it got uglier. They started saying, um, you know, we're going to get you. The crowd had weapons. I actually lost two cast members. They ran outside. We had to call the police halfway through the show. And when we called the police, they're offended by the topics. So the cops stopped my show and let me know that if I proceeded and the crowd got up and attacked, they would not help because they said I would be um, kind of riling them up. If I get attacked, the police would sit there and I was like, I guess watch me get ins- uh, assaulted or whatever. Uh, he had to go to class um, with security guards for a couple weeks. He was called Black Hitler by, by everybody. I mean, he doesn't mind the name calling. What he minds is the the threats to, uh, you know, his person, his and threats of violence and such. So that's that's one of the, the stories we touch on. I think everybody has the right to express their opinion. Um, as a performer, as someone who has been involved in stand-up for almost 20 years, yes, I started when I was five. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, and I grew up in a family where we laughed a lot. We laughed at silly stuff. We laughed at painful stuff. We laughed at gruesome things. That was what strengthened us and moved us forward. And I just kind of made the assumption that that's what everybody did. Um, I'm finding out more and more how, how wrong that assumption is, especially based on what we see happening in these academic institutions where people are there to grow, to learn, to experience other people, other cultures, other ideas, to exchange these ideas so that they know more about who they are as their own people. So I have no problem with people saying, I don't care for that. My problem is when you try to destroy someone else or keep them from expressing themselves. There's a lot of stuff out there I don't like to hear. To be as dismissive as people are and, and shutting down the opportunity to even have this collection of exchanges of ideas, it's scary to me. It's scary. It's upsetting. It's frightening. 
I, I hope that the pendulum starts to swing in the other direction. Yeah, it is a pendulum swing. But do you think there's ever a point where a performer does, in fact, go too far? Not in, for, in terms of First Amendment. Obviously, the government shouldn't step in. But what if someone says something so offensive to communities? All the communities can do, all the offended parties can do is say, I care not to it's listen to that. It's subjective. It's well, subjective. subjective. Exactly. But, but that, what about... that's comedy. All, okay, these are the rules in comedy. Mm-hmm. There are no rules. All is fair in love and comedy. Well, if it's not <laughs> right. funny, it violates a rule. Well, it's supposed to be funny. That's but it, Well, true. this gets me to this guy. Funny to who? Well, this gets me to this guy, Sal Rodriguez, who is at Reed College, right, Ted? Yeah, that's right. And I think of, of uh, when you follow professional comedians who are shot down or some of the complaints that are in the movie – one tends to roll, roll their eyes and say, wow, this is a very delicate community who was offended. And yet, what Sal's quote-unquote performance was, I think I have the exact quotes here. And usually you would say, in doing the quotes, I'm not doing them justice. <laughs> and yet with Sal, I am. It was pretty terrible. He said, women who go to college have a tendency to major in fields like women's studies and English. And those women in women's studies, sociology, and other useless fields, they will spend their useless academic careers bitching about the lack of women in math and science. And at this point, a heckler yells, fuck you. And Rodriguez gets into it. And he shuts her down with this classic bit of crowd work. You fucking loudmouth cunt. All right. Again, he shouldn't be arrested. (laughs) But this guy did comedy wrong. And the reason isn't just because he was offensive. This guy was so ill adept at what he did. He let it get away to him. And I don't know that a heckler being offended or the whole community having a discussion about that. I don't know if that fits in with anything like a pendulum swinging or, you know, it being really scary for free speech. Why why was this guy one of the uh, ones you wanted to highlight in the documentary? Well, in, in the first place, it's because the, the young lady continued. Uh, it, it wasn't just once back and forth. It was a continuing heckling. And then she topped it off by going on stage and taking the mic away from him. And then they had a, a, a support yeah. group afterwards. And I think a lot of it was uh, you know, for, for students who were traumatized by his act. Uh, one of the reasons is because the, the mic was taken. And I see that as crossing the line. Another reason is because it's important to consider context. People who aren't familiar with Reed, it's a very loosey-goosey campus. The comedians there frequently engage in very provocative acts, and they advertise this. Nobody is surprised. The the fellow before Sal Rodriguez uh, stripped naked and did his entire act completely nude. I mean, there was every kind of horrific topic joke by other comedians Everything you can imagine was said before Sal Rodriguez came to the stage. Sal comes up, he does his thing. Yes, whether or not he's funny, that's beside the point. I think, in, I, look, I've, <laughs> my brother, my little brother's a stand-up comedian. I've watched him grow up. I've seen a lot of really bad comedy. One of the worst things in the world is bad comedy. I've gone to bringer shows. I've gone to open mic nights. It is horrible. And watching it on stage is often extremely uncomfortable. But especially because it's in college, you're going to see a lot of this horrible, uncomfortable stuff. You're going to, as Kara says in the movie, the comedians are finding their voice. And it's not about whether this person or that person is funny or whether we think he or she is funny. It's do we give them the opportunity, you know, within the context that they've created to do this and to eventually maybe become funny 
for me, there were two factors in play with the South thing. One, he was a baby comic. Mm-hmm. Okay? He's only been doing it for how long? Right? So he doesn't have the skills necessarily. He hasn't honed his craft to get the message out that he wanted to. But I, I understood what he was saying. And the other factor was that the woman who was very offended by what he said, she wasn't even listening to what he said. She heard it, but she didn't listen and interpret because he actually had a very valid point. And I'm someone who went to a women's college, actually one of the oldest women's colleges in the country. And his point was valid, which I thought was actually funny. And maybe that's what she didn't want to hear. But she needed to keep that anger in check, you know, and not try to squash him saying what he had to say. If she wanted to say something, she, she could have found a forum to do that. I, my take was, and we didn't see the whole tape, but what do you expect? I thought that, it, first of all, I thought it wasn't essentially a valid point. I thought it was so poorly done. I thought it was meant to be confrontational. And when it invoked this reaction, and when he had no skills to tamp it down, I don't think that this whole instance was an example of injustice. I think it was sort of comedy justice playing out. Now, if the college had done something other than whatever, their trauma workshops, they didn't suspend him, did they? It's been a while. I'm a little hazy on the details, but they did. Um, he was dressed down by, by the dean, accused of using hostile language toward a female uh, student. Yeah. They weren't suspended, but they... Um, uh, they were reprimanded in ways that that uh, made it harder for them to do what they wanted to do in terms of of comedy. But yeah. it, it's also. But I would just say that this is one example. If we say free speech should be countered with other free speech rather than shutting down, sure, the woman going on the stage taking the mic. But that to me was just a consequence of him not knowing how to do his job or the job he was uh, the clothes he was putting on that day. Uh, to me, you know, this is essentially an inevitable consequence of really, really charged language designed to get a reaction, and it got a reaction. But that's your job as a comic. But he you didn't know, have a job. But that's, no, he's it just is. Pretending. It is your job as a comic to learn how to do comedy, and that's what he was doing. Okay. But so he's the delicate guy no, that we have to protect from a heckler resp- that he, he didn't know no, how to deal here's with. Here's the deal. He is responsible for what he said. Right. Okay. And responsible for the consequences. However, those quons- consequences should not include someone physically yeah. causing an altercation. Right. Okay. So if this Use guy were words. on, if this guy were on a, a uh, bringer night or something at the comedy cellar, I don't even know if they have them, right? And he does this, and someone goes on stage. You'd hope someone from the club would Hell certainly yeah. take that woman off stage. But you know what? I don't think they'd have the guy back, and I think they'd be right to. And if someone said to the guy that was not cool, I think that that would be right too. I don't think that that would be a free speech issue. Yeah, of course not. And, yeah. and that's that's the you know the cultural marketplace. It's important to keep in mind that we did highlight. The, the Sal case, it's it's tough to, to watch, but the things that kids, I shouldn't say kids, students on campus are getting busted for these days are just typically much, much less offensive than uh, what Salvador Rodriguez engaged in. We, in a montage, we list some of them, like this, this one woman at a college in Alaska was brought up on charges of sexual harassment because she had a student newspaper and they they did a story about a vagina-shaped building on campus. And the visual of that was funny, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) there's so many instances that are just miles away from Salvador Rodriguez. More than 100 campuses have biased response teams. You can commit the crime of inappropriately directed laughter, and that is a punishable offense on some campuses. I mean, that, that is like you know, Orwell's nightmare coming (laughs) to life. 
There are, though, complicated questions that I don't know the answer to. Like, what is the most that you think a group should do if they want to draw attention to offensive language? If they want to draw attention to the fact that even something said in a comedy context should be considered by society to be offensive? What's the right thing to do? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't have a specific answer other than to meet more speech, meet speech you don't like with more speech. That's how uh, Jonathan Rauch in the film says that the gay rights movement has progressed. You know, actually, maybe Lisa Lampanelli, uh, who's, you know, the lovable queen of mean, uh, in the film, we profile how she responded to the, you know, the horrible Westboro Baptist Church. They were protesting her show. They, They even made a poster of her and everything. Instead of trying to shut them down, she she went out and counter protested them. And she she also announced hey, for every protester who shows up, I'm going to donate $1,000 to a pro-gay charity. 50 protesters showed up and she cut a big, you know, one of those oversized checks for 50 grand and gave it to uh, a man's charity. And so that gave her so much publicity. It was it was covered so widely. And it was kind of like, you know, almost judo, like using your opponent's momentum against himself. And and I think the way that she handled that is was brilliant. And it's kind of a model for, for the rest of us. Ted Balaker is the director of the film, Can We Take a Joke? Kareth Foster is in the film. Thank you, Kareth. Thank you, (laughs) Ted. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. When it comes to optics and politics, I like the classics. The way you wear your hat, the whiff of impropriety, the distinct impression of wrongdoing. You can't take that away from me. Ah, the smell of smoke. And where there is smoke, there is fire, right? That is the only known explanation for smoke. The notion has permeated coverage of the workings of the Clinton Foundation. It took donations. And then Hillary Clinton, Clinton, like the very name of the foundation, she was Secretary of State. She meets with donors to the foundation. Who are these donors? Well, they're heads of state. And there are also some non-heads of state, like Nobel Prize winners. Well, there are also requests for favors. A donor asked for permission for a soccer star to enter the U.S. And there was this request from a Lebanese businessman that he could meet with the former Lebanon ambassador. Okay, no permission was given. No meeting ever happened. She would have met with heads of state and Nobel Prize winners anyway. In fact, you can't prove, and to this day, no one has really even strongly indicated that anyone got anything for donating to the Clinton Foundation that they wouldn't have gotten anyway. But it doesn't matter. It's a whiff. It gives rise to questions, serious questions. And there are questions in the air about the other guy, too. It is the $25,000 question in politics right now. Donald Trump dismissing questions about a donation his foundation made to Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi's re-election campaign back in 2013. Now, this gift came around the time that Bondi was thinking about opening a fraud investigation into Trump University. Now, the $25,000 question, that ain't much of a question in modern politics, is it? The attorney general of Florida did get a donation from Donald Trump, did speak at the Republican convention, is a Trump backer. The question is, was this a quid pro quo? We definitely have the quid, 25 k worth of quid, but I go, no pro. This is from reporting I've been reading in the Tampa Tribune. And from the reporting of Drew Griffin on CNN, I will play an extended clip 
of him. Here are the facts. Pam Bondi took office in 2011. Trump University was already out of business. Prior to her taking office, Florida's Attorney General's office received 20 complaints against Trump Institute, a business affiliated with Trump, but it too was out of business. Since Pam Bondi took office, up until the decision was made, Florida received just one complaint against Trump University. According to a spokesman for Florida's Attorney General, it wasn't enough to justify Florida filing suit. Instead, staff doing due diligence reviewed the complaints and the New York litigation and made the proper determination that the New York litigation would provide relief to aggrieved consumers nationwide. In other words, Floridians could join New York's lawsuit. But on the same network, CNN, there was the usual talk of hints and appearances and optics. Here's CNN's Jeff Zeleny. So it doesn't look very good. And this is one of several um, examples of attorney generals across the country that were on the verge of looking into something and then uh, stop. No, I guess it doesn't look good. But what proof is there of favoritism? Slate ran with this under the headline, Trump's 25,000 donation to Pam Bondi, extremely sketchy. CNN covered the donation on its website in the usual way, avoiding questions of what's actually known to prove a quid pro quo and simply assessing the political fallout of dueling accusations. They write, the issue comes after Trump spent two weeks riding a wave of newly released emails to accuse foreign donors of buying special access to then Secretary of State Clinton. There's no reporting in the CNN article if those accusations are true. But it goes on to this sense. The accusations against Clinton have contributed to a tightening of the race for the White House with just a little more than two months to go. As Clinton supporters accused Trump of paying Bondi to ignore accusations against Trump University, Trump supporters took to the airwaves to defend him. So as I said, it's it's dueling accusations. I guess it all cancels out each other, right? No, actually, I don't think so. There are similarities between the foundation donation stories. One, there is no demonstrable quid pro quo in either case. The media can claim optics, but the media can also claim that a Captain Beefheart album was an audio triumph. That doesn't make it listenable. But there are differences between the two foundations in these stories. For one, there was an illegality in the Trump donation. He did it from his foundation, which is not legal, and reported that he donated to the wrong organization, a Kansas anti-abortion charity, rather than Pam Bondi's political action committee. Donating to Bondi, a political action committee, any political action committee from a charity, by the way, is not illegal. So he has been made to pay a fine. Why? Because he is sneaky. Maybe because he is sloppy, demonstrably. The other big difference is this, the horrible look of the Clinton Foundation scandal, if you want to call it that. At least it was in the service of a charity that sought to eradicate African mosquito-borne diseases, whereas Trump's university was something of a mosquito-borne disease. Though it's also been argued, on the other hand, that Hillary Clinton was a government official and therefore she should be held to a higher standard than just a private citizen. This argument has been advanced by Trump's surrogates, who go on to say that what we need now is a businessman to wipe away all the effects of these government officials. If you really want complication, let's end with this quote from Pam Bondi. And you may have inferred from everything I've been saying that I don't think she's guilty of any wrongdoing in this matter, except for maybe backing Donald Trump. Well, here she is on the Fox Business Channel. Smells bad. Well, let me tell you, I will not be collateral damage in a presidential campaign, nor will I be a woman bullied by Hillary Clinton. Okay there, Arya Stark. 
you took an improperly filed donation from a businessman behind a massive scam that did rob at least a few of the citizens you swore to represent. You are no hero here. And the lucky thing for me is, even if I can't prove that, I could say it in such a concerned tone that it really does raise serious questions about the appearance of impropriety. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube, just producer, he is behind a new product, Wireless Wire Cutters. The company instantly went out of business. Mary Wilson, just producer, she is breeding wireless wire fox hair terriers, or as the American Kennel Club dubs them, just dogs. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is behind Wireless HBO, meaning he knows Dominic West solely as Mr. Mopey Pants from the affair. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, he favors a wireless alphabet, meaning he doesn't have gaydar, but he does have gada. And he doesn't eat oysters, he does eat osties, and he doesn't believe in pterodactyls, but he does think that the teodactyl did exist. The gist, I am just winded after that Andy Bowers one, taking a breather. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.